Good morning, kia ora, and welcome to this episode of Windows on Dementia podcast. My name is Daniel Paul, and uh, I have with me today Rosie Chambers, who is the manager of uh, Alzheimer's South Canterbury, and Glenn Brad Bradley, uh, who is the manager of Alzheimer's Tauranga, uh, Western Bay of Plenty. Um, we're going to be talking to uh, Rosie and Glenn about the community support services <clears throat> that their organisations provide in their communities. Those, those services are in a parlous state. They are woefully underfunded and very, very delicately balanced. And we're going to hear from them the stresses that they are under and what this means for people in the community who are living with dementia. Now, funding for these services is desperately needed to help people and whānau living with dementia in Aotearoa get the support that they actually need. And this podcast is timely because we're coming into the 2023 elections uh, and uh, we've got a very strong message to government that our community support services need to be prioritised and they need urgent funding. Government's already indicated some support uh, for the dementia sector with the implementation of the Dementia Matter Larabere Action Plan uh, and the support for healthy ageing in the Tipaitata Interim New Zealand Health Plan. But, and this is the big issue, but there is still a lot to do uh, to support the dementia sector to the level it needs. So our local support services do an amazing job, but let's find out what it's really like at the sharp end, what it's like at the coalface for Rosie and her team and Glenn and his team. So welcome to this podcast. Thank you for joining us. Um, and can I ask both of you, Rosie, I'm going to go to you first, if, if I could, uh, give us a quick overview of your service, um, location, size, whereabouts, what you do, team members, and then Glenn, I'll come to you. Awesome. Thanks, Daniel. And um, thanks again for this opportunity. Um, I think you're right. The timing's really prudent that we have some of these conversations. Um, I'm based in Alzheimer's South Canterbury, which is based in Timaru. Um, and we're a really small uh, team that support people obviously living with dementia, but in a very large region. So for those of you who don't know, South Canterbury region covers for us from Glenavy down south, right through to the Mackenzie region, and then all the little areas in between. So for us as a service that covers quite a range of both urban and rural areas, um, which obviously has its challenges in itself um, covering such a large distance. We currently support around 350 clients, so people with dementia and their family whānau, and we sort of, um, our service has grown significantly in the last year. We average around 10 new clients being referred every month. Um, which is a massive change from the last two years. We're sitting between 44 to 66 new clients referred into the service a year. And last year alone, we did 101, um, saw 101 new people. So that's significant growth, even just in our tiny little region here in South Canterbury. So that's us. Okay, thanks, Rosie. Glenn, um, your turn. Morena. Uh, so my name is yeah, Glenn Bradley and I'm the general manager here for Alzheimer's Tauranga Western Bay Pliny. So we share a, a number of similarities with um, the likes of an organisation such as, as Alzheimer's South Canterbury, um, but have some, some differences as well. Our region is, is probably geographically more compact than, than South Canterbury. Uh, however, we've got more, more people in, in the area that we um, do serve. 
we're seeing some similar trends, certainly um, growth in referrals through to our service over the last two to three years has been consistent. And um, last year we saw um, an increase of referrals in the 2021 year of close to 8% over the year before. And the referrals for 2020 were a 10% increase on the year before that. The number of people requiring and seeking our services is continuing to grow year on year. And in our area, we had around uh, 225 new referrals last year. So that's 225 new families referred through to our services. We've got a, a, a small team of 10 in the area here, uh, one full-time position. So I'm a full-time person and, and the rest of our staff are utilizing a mixture of part-time positions. And, and that's a little summary of us. Um, and we're providing services to people from, yep, Kitty Kitty in the north through to Marita, uh, Makatu, Pukahina in the south. Just just um, for the benefit of our listeners, <clears throat> just give me the ratio of team members or staff to clients you support, Glenn. So depending on the role, but so for our, um, our full-time navigators who essentially do the, the case management for the staff there, um, so they would across the team would probably average out as, a, as about 20 hours per week. And um, for those people at 20 hours a week, probably looking at a, at a caseload or needing to look at um, providing services to 80 to 90 clients. Um, so what we then do in there, if you're putting that out into kind of terms that are often used in the industry for, for a full-time equivalent, You'd be looking at a caseload of, you know, you know, well in excess of, of 100 clients for for um, somebody to manage, and um, you know, those kind of numbers are are not really sustainable. We've done a lot of work in the last couple of years to get them towards manageable levels. We've made some progress in that respect. Um, we're getting closer, but there's still a fair way to go. And and ultimately, at the end of the day, the solution to be able to do that is is to be able to have some more resources available. So, Rosie, same question to you. What, what's the sort of caseload that your guys are managing? Yeah, so we're, um, we're caught very small here in South Canterbury. So I've just got four staff members, including myself, um, and only two of us are Dementia Advisors. So um, I've got one uh, Dementia Advisor in the community for 25 hours a week, and then myself, who's a, I'm a registered nurse by background, um, I, so I do Dementia Advising work as well as managing the service. Uh, and between the two of us, um, I'm 35 hours a week. So between the two of us, we've got about 150 clients each um, that we're managing because there's just the two of us in our community um, out supporting the clients. And um, we've got a very part-time sort of five hours a week financial admin. And then we've got a 15 hour a week sort of fundraising PR type uh, team member. So community-wise, it's pretty heavy load for the two of us to be um, balancing and we're spreading ourselves as well as we can across the region. Let's actually talk about the, the services that you are delivering and the and the and the I don't know the, the realities on the ground. What are the challenges that you face? I know we've talked about money, there's not there's not enough of it, but how does that actually translate to service delivery or the lack of? Yeah, so for us, um, it really uh, means operationally we need to look at what services we're delivering, how we're delivering them, and um, with that increase in service demand, um, even locally at our level, you just see that gap become greater. 
For example, like here in South Canterbury, we've got a really high population of people who are living over the age of 65 in our region, and that's in comparison to the national average. So 16% is the national average from the last census. We're sitting at 23 already. So automatically that shows you that our need in our community is going to be quite high because we've got older people living in their own homes for a lot longer than, than maybe some other regions. So some of the big challenges that we see here is um, already we have a real shortage of dementia beds. Um, you know, so for people who are down their journey with dementia and requiring sort of residential care or secure care placement, we've already got a real shortage of beds. So what that does is have, you know, like a ripple effect. So you throw a stone into the pond, that's your problem there, but then you've got the ripple effect that comes out from it. And for us, what that means is people are staying at home for longer and longer because either they're fearful of being sent out of the region to a bed or um, that is their ultimate goal to stay home. So it puts that additional pressure out on the community support services like ours. So that's kind of one of our big um, challenges really locally at our region. Um, funding we've kind of touched on, that's our main challenge really if we're honest. Um, and, and I guess from a management perspective and a service delivery perspective, it's about looking at what we do between, particularly in the community, between the two of us and my team, and how can we do it more efficiently? Or if we're identifying gaps in areas within our region, how do we how do we support these people? You know, if they can't get to us, how do we look at getting to them in a way that's accessible but also sustainable? Let me come back to that one, Rosie, because you raised an interesting point. Glenn your service um, facing the same kind of challenges or or are there other unique problems that, that you face up in uh, Tauranga? Yeah, for, for us, not so many unique problems. It's more a situation where um, we we see and we absolutely agree with the aspirational changes of the health system and, you know, power healthy futures. It's, it's a great aspirational change. Um, but it needs to be resourced in order so that we can, you know, deliver upon those those aspirational changes, you know, so that we can be person centred, so that people can have choice in the way that they have their uh, services delivered, that they can be delivered close to where they live, mm. um, and you know, and these things are you know even more important to to people that that come to services such as ours because of you know dementia doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists, it often exists in an older age and there are often other, whether it's other um, health conditions or other social issues or, you know, any, any number of things that, that sit alongside that. Um, in order for us to be responsive, we need to be at least adequately resourced. Poirot talks about designing and delivering services and consultation with the people utilising those services. Well, that that's great to be able to do, but it's really difficult to do that if you can't even deliver the core services because you haven't been resourced to do those. And and as Rosie touched on, respite, okay? And, you know, respite sits alongside that. core services. Um, the traditional model of respite, there's, there's there's no easy way out of that. There's, there's not, there's not going to be enough respite beds available in aged residential care services to to cater for the respite demands even even in terms of the system now to, compared to what those demands were four or five years ago but considering that we're getting compounding increase in new referrals through to our services we've got a growing aging population and a population where that age group in the sort of the upper end of that growing aging population, the 85 pluses uh, you know are going to be tripling in the in the next sort of 10 or 15 years. It needs to be another look at, at respite and, and how it can how access to respite 
can be reimagined, how flexibility in the delivery or the way that people can receive respite can be done. There's no low-hanging fruit there in the area of respite, but perhaps there are some innovative sort of micro-opportunities that support services the likes of ours can start to provide and be able to provide some more of, and that may just be able to take the pressure valve off a little bit there. So a different look at respite. Rosie, this is not rocket science. The, the powers that be in the health sector have known we've got an aging population. Um, it's not something which is suddenly a surprise to them. Why is it that we're not doing anything about this problem? I guess, honestly, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? And um, from my perspective, you know, I've worked in the healthcare sector, I've been an RN for 17 years now, and um, I've seen heaps of change. And yes, we've absolutely seen this coming, um, particularly not just dementia, but with our aging populations in general. Um, and I guess that's where I'm really hopeful that we are going to see a change with um, Te Whata Ora and with the health reforms and um, some of the commitments that they've made in some of these interim documents and their missions and things. And that I think a great start is to try and move away from that postcode lottery system. That's going to have a huge effect. And I'm really hopeful that um, some of what we're talking about now moving forward is going to provide some of that, like Glenn's saying, that innovation around how do we use or how do we tap into supports that are out there in a different way that we've historically done it. We really have to start thinking outside the box as a sector and how do we support people within their own environments or within their own uh, communities and move away, if, if appropriate, by the person from the traditional uh, means that we've always done. So, Million-dollar question, and I don't have the answer for you, Daniel. <laughs> no, I wasn't expecting an answer, really. But Glenn, you um, you were talking there about the consultation. Um, does anyone actually come talk to you guys? Do any do does anyone actually come and say, "Hey, what do you need? What would work for you?" Uh, historically, hasn't been a, a strong point, and and I guess look, um, you know, what was the what was the the question you asked before was why, why aren't we doing more? And I think when you said why aren't we doing more, you, you, the, the we in that space was New Zealand, right? That there was, you know, why isn't New Zealand doing more, or why isn't the people? Yeah, well, I mean, as, as I said, I mean, the, the aging yeah. population is, is it's not a new thing. We've known it's coming, um, yeah. and, and as a, as as the policymakers in our health sector know it's coming, so they know the implications. Yeah, and I guess the re you know, the, or, or part of the or, or way of addressing that is. Um, Healthy futures in Pyrora and the health system shakeup and and reforms in and of themselves are a signal that what we had been doing from 2021 and prior were not working. We're mm -hmm. fundamentally broken, and they need to be reimagined and um, and then re-delivered and resourced. Now I think we've got to the point where they have been reimagined. There's a new vision, as I said. We're absolutely aligned with the concepts and the philosophies of Pyrora Healthy Futures. I guess now is the time where we look to see some results coming from there and some things being done differently, being resourced differently. Because in order to do that, we can have new names, we can have new logos, we can have new email signatures in the system. Um, but until we actually get some fundamental changes in the way that services are delivered and, and services are resourced, and that's not just in the dementia sector, but across the board, right? We're just one of a number of, of organ, you know, organisations or sectors that are affected that way. Um, until we see some meaningful changes actually happening in that respect, there's, there's limited opportunity to change because something has to change further up in the system in order to actually allow that to happen. Okay, so we've talked quite a bit uh, today about the system and, um, you know, 
the fact that you need resourcing and the fact that things need to change, uh, consultation, accessibility, things like that. What's it like for me as a New Zealander living with dementia on a day-to-day -day basis, trying to access support services? Tell me what it would be, tell our listeners what it's like for them when they've got to try and navigate the system. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess I can just talk on um, behalf of the feedback that we hear from our carers and, and the people who are living with dementia that we're supporting. And uh, a big couple of words that come to mind is uh, a minefield, um, confusing, overwhelming initially, specifically at the point where someone's given a diagnosis that might happen within a hospital environment, it might happen with, at the GP practice, and suddenly they're sent on their way with this diagnosis and people go, well, what now? You know, what? who do I go to? What do I do? Where do I learn? And so from a service perspective, we become that person. And we, um, you know, we talk about being dementia advisors, but we're also navigators. So we help our people to really navigate that journey. So this is the diagnosis you've got, or these are the um, symptoms that you're having or supporting someone with at home. Um, how can we support you around, you know, the emotional support that someone needs post-diagnostic, the education that someone needs throughout their journey? And that's not just at the day of diagnosis. That's actually about walking the walk with people, um, you know, meeting up with them face-to-face, forming that trust and that connection, and then really sharing in their journey with them because it is overwhelming. And that's I mean, um, Glenn probably hears the same thing. It's sort of similar sort of themes. It's very a bit of a minefield for people to be navigating, and we seem to be that pe that person or that service that they come to and say, "Hey, where do I go to for this?" And while we as a service might not provide all of that support ourselves, we can at least help link them in, you know, to um, DHB supports if needed for physios or continence services or um, respite allocations. We can link them with NASC and things like that. That's probably what I hear coming through when people are first diagnosed. Uh, Glenn, what about you? What's what's the biggest challenge that someone would face when they when they get diagnosed? Yeah, look, and I did, I did absolutely um, support everything that, that Rosie's alluded to there. Um, the, the, the challenges, well, there's no one answer to what's the biggest challenge because the thing with dementia is it's different for every every family in every situation. But I think there are some really common challenges that we see. Um, and some of those things that, that we see more often than not are, are one that the, the timing of the diagnosis itself can be incredibly variable. We, uh, you know, we're pretty confident that if people can, um, you know, access a, a diagnosis early in the journey that we're able to make more impact with our services. Um, but we know there are a, a number, a significant number of reasons why that doesn't necessarily happen. Um, uh, However, in, in our area in particular, um, we're starting to see some um, good traction with at least once people are getting a diagnosis through their GP, that the referrals then are coming through to our services relatively quickly. So we've made some good you know, headway in that space. Um, so so the, 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 the situation where people are at when they get diagnosis and the, um, and the challenges and, and just some of the stigmas associated with challenges, the fact that... Um, you know, primary care that GPs themselves, what we hear anecdotally is that it's one of the most challenging, if not the most challenging diagnosis that they can give. Um, and I think that's due to a number of reasons, but partly because there are no great medical interventions to put in place. And, and which kind of leads on to one of those other um, challenges, which is, you know, uncertainty. You know, the, the journey is different for everybody. Um, it's difficult for us to say when you're making a diagnosis about dementia, um, which part of the brain 
is being affected. You know, those things can't be kind of clearly and easily diagnosed at diagnosis stage. Um, and because those can't be diagnosed, then then a kind of a pathway or a progression or how those things um, are likely to affect um, somebody. And of course, from there, the family, the network and, and, and life moving forward um, are, are very difficult to predict as well. So there's layer upon layer of uncertainty um, in front of people at, at this stage. And, and you know, um, their, their roles in their lives are, are being turned sort of upside down pretty quickly sometimes. So we sit in a health system, but we actually provide a social service, you know, a very strong social service. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Rosie, what's the most important thing you can do for somebody who has just been, in the family, sorry, of somebody who's just been diagnosed with dementia? What's what's the one critical thing that you can do that would actually going to make a difference? I think um, from what we see is actually just someone to be there, someone to listen, someone to hear them out. Like Glenn said, we do a lot of sort of supporting the whole family, the whole whanau unit. So looking at the individual situation and really working out a way forward with the person themselves based on what their goals are and how their life's changing and how we can be of support and just being there, I think is just so critical that they aren't alone, you know, that someone's there to help. And while we may not have all the answers right there and then just knowing that they've got someone to share that journey with and that there's a sounding board there if they need it um, is really, really important, I think. Just helping them with that real emotional support at that very, very early stage. Yeah, Glenn, Rosie's making dementia sound more than just a health condition. Uh, it, it absolutely is, and, it, and it's you know, and it's a condition that, as I said before, it doesn't exist in a vacuum, uh, and it's and it's more than just a health condition, and it, it impacts you know all parts of people's lives. And I think you know, um, to to go back to your question before, what's a key impact that we can make? Um, we're having a discussion earlier, just in this week, we we're alluding to the fact that you know, it, it appears to us that people. Um, accessing our services, we've, we've spoken a lot about the system in in this discussion this morning, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but when when our people, uh, our, whether we whether we refer to them as our clients or our service users, you know, the family and Fano who access our services, right? What we can do is spend a little bit of time, not a lot, doesn't have to be a huge amount. We're not talking, you know, hours and hours a week with with people, but a certain amount of time in a way that they feel like they're getting some support that's not part necessarily of the system, that's mm -hmm. actually meaningful information and support tailored to them to help guide and navigate them through the challenges that they are facing in their life. Because it's not just the medical part of their life that's changing at this stage or the, or the health side. It, it's, it's an encompassing a, across a number of things. And they need support. They need to start to make some plans around some some legal aspects of, you know, things like that. Enduring power of attorney is one of those quite sort of, you know, even when I say the words now, it sounds like it's a, you know, a daunting prospect to, to have to start to unravel. Um, getting, you know, getting supports, into the household or planning for when supports may need to come into the household, getting just a little bit of a leg up. So those, some a small amount of investment in um, building a relationship, you know, being able to provide some fanana tanga there with and, and get relationships, trust and supports for the families so that they know, um, even if we can't provide, and we generally don't provide all the core frontline care as such, but we can help ensure that the best support services are in place for those families. And, and they've got a trusted 
advocate for themselves, a trusted partner, um, people that they know and understand and who know and understand their situation that can guide them through the journey that they are entering. And it's a, a tough, a very tough journey, Rosie, isn't it? And I mean, it must be disheartening for your team, Rosie, knowing you know that they could be doing all this to help people with dementia. They could be providing all these services, all the support, yet they just, there's nothing there to do it with. It must be very disheartening. Absolutely. I mean, you just kind of feel like you're walking around a little bit with your hands tied. You know, you see those opportunities that you, for the difference you could be making. Um, and, you know, very recently, even um, Matthew Croucher was talking on Radio New Zealand about the importance of navigation and really, really good navigational services at the time of diagnosis and the impact that that has on a person's experience. Sure, we may not change the trajectory of the disease, but we're actually looking at the experience for the person and the family. And, when we go in, we're in a very privileged position. You know, already you can see when you connect with a family and a client that there's a sense of relief that someone's here and someone knows what they're going through and someone's going to listen and not judge them. So we get a huge amount of satisfaction from that. But you're right. There is that challenge of we know we could be doing more. We know we could be doing better and we know we could be reaching further. But at the moment, we're doing the best we can. And I guess, you know, spreading the margarine as thin as we can on the toast to cover as many a slices of bread as we can. You know, that's a terrible analogy. But you practice that analogy? <laughs> it's kind of what you, that came straight off the top of my head. Sorry, but it's kind of what you think, isn't it? You're just spreading yourself so thin sometimes that you think, man, we could do a way better job here. We already do a great job. I truly believe that with my team. And we see that in the numbers coming into the service and the things you're hearing about, you know, from the community, but we could be doing a lot more. Uh, Glenn, I'm, I'm sure you agree wholeheartedly with that. But let me ask you on a personal note, what motivates you to do this job in the face of such a, a challenging environment? There's a, there's, a, there's a lot of aspects around, in terms of me, in terms of the role that I'm doing, I'm really fortunate to be able to enable a team of very passionate, skilled and capable people to deliver a really important service to the community, you know. And I mean, look, our vision is to, you know, make lives better for all people affected by dementia. And to me, that's just a real kind of pure North Star, right? And 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 we actually do use it and I go back to it. And when we're asking questions on my team are coming back to me, can we kind of do this? Can we kind of stretch? Is there a way that we can look to solve this problem? And if I kind of go back to that North Star, is it going to make people's lives better, people who are affected by dementia? The answer to it is yes. Then it's kind of like, okay, now how can we try and do that? Um, so there's something, I don't know, there's, there's, there's something that just seems, uh, pure is not quite the right word, but, you know, so you're doing something that's, that's, that's got some real impact um, in the community there. Um, but it is a really, really challenging area to work in right um you know we've got staff on board we're really fortunate we've got you know registered nurses and occupational therapists on on, on staff um great professionals um for them to choose to come into this sector is a conscious choice but it, it's also a really difficult one because you think of um let's say occupational therapy for for an example you know oftentimes through the career people have been able to um come and get engaged um you know if they work intensively with somebody perhaps somebody who's had an accident or an injury you can rehabilitate somebody and get them back to a level or close to a level of what they were before yep, now yep. the the reality right the trajectory with dementia is that that that, that type of outcome um 
is, is not a realistic outcome, right? With you know, so um, we're we're in there. We we realise that people are on a on a journey that's um that's not going to have necessarily those great outcomes at the end of the day. Um, but we can make that situation. We can we can help people create those moments of joy along the way. There's there's still a lot of life to be left to be lived, um, and a lot of a lot of moments a lot of time that can be you know very well spent and, and real quality left in, in in life um when people are living with dementia and our job and i guess and our role is to be able to um, enable and facilitate um for for families to be able to make the most of those and actually be able to kind of um access those and if we can remove some of the barriers that are in place to that happening uh, by some of our interventions um you know that's really important. Even the simplest socialization, allowing people to, you know, provide a, an opportunity for people to get together. We know that people's, um, you know, uh, that their, their interactions, their social interactions can start to um, decrease markedly once the diagnosis of dementia comes in place. And if that happens, then the pathway or the trajectory can get worse and worse and worse. So, so it, it, you know, it's not, rocket science our interventions um they're not high cost interventions they're not high cost pharmacological interventions they're not you know capital intensive they require a mix of of, of passionate and um able staff and oftentimes a, a strong pool of volunteers to supplement that uh, but can provide some you know really meaningful um outcomes for those people that are affected and can really make a significant difference and that's where we kind of are kind of like a social service and a health service and yeah. and sometimes we get kind of caught in the middle and perhaps forgotten about when it comes to resourcing services such as ours yeah it does seem to me that the the amount of additional resourcing that you require is a drop in the bucket compared to the quality of life improvements that those additional resources that could actually generate for people living with dementia um, I'm going to wrap it up now, but I just want to ask you both um, one last question. I'm, I think it's only going to be one. Um, I might change my mind, but um, you've talked about how difficult it is. You've talked about the, 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 the resourcing constraints that you're under and the impact that has on the services that you provide, and then the impact that has on the people who use your services. Alzheimer's New Zealand has talked about the fact that, you know, some of these services are on the brink of financial collapse. Now, I don't want to dramatise, but what I do want to hear from both of you, Rosie, you first, is, um, you know, on a scale of one to 10, if uh, 10 is we're extremely well funded and happy as Larry, and one is we're almost out the back door, where are you sitting on the scale? In our region, we're sitting probably uh, between a two to a three somewhere, where, um, you know, we're trying to be as sustainable as we can, but um, things are looking grim, really. Growth is increasing, funding's not, so that gap is just getting bigger and bigger. So we probably realistically are sitting between a two, maybe a four if I'm being really kind and, and careful, but um, things are looking pretty tough for financial stability carrying on, absolutely. And that's a real risk for our local community because we're at in South Canterbury. We don't have a competitor or another organisation doing that navigation. Um, we're it. We've got great relationships with our local needs assessment, with our geriatricians, with our DHB, um, and with our um, local Marae and Iwi. So um, everybody's kind of at a point where they're leaning on us, and um, that's wonderful because we've got those relationships, but we have to have the resource to back it. 
So in other words, coming back to your analogy, you've got a lot of toast and very little margarine. We do. That's a terrible analogy, isn't it? But yes, that's that's it. Okay. But those numbers actually crystallise for me and, and for our listeners sort of the severity of the situation. Now, Glenn, what about you on that same scale? Ten, you're extremely well-funded. One, you're almost out the back door. Yeah, look, and, and before I talk about us, I, I just want to pay you know respects to the to, to Rosie in the situation that her team are faced back there and and let's not forget those people that are propping up those organizations in the meantime and how long does the system how long does Health New Zealand how long do the people who are actually responsible for that expect those you know martyrs is a strong word but those people that are working in those organizations to continue to work under those conditions because at some point really really good people want to make an impact and make a difference and if it isn't going to be achieved at there. At some stage, you're going to do one or two things. You're going to burn them out or they're going to have to be formed. If they want to make a difference, find another way to make a difference. And the people that are going to get affected there at the end of the day are the people with the condition. So that's pretty heavy. But um, for us in, in, our, um, in our area, yeah, you know, a little bit of postcode lottery thing going on. We're probably at about a six, right? Now, a 10, when you said a 10 is extremely well-funded, I'd kind of put that on the on yep. the qualification that a 10 is not extremely well-funded, that a team, that a 10 would be adequately funded. Mm-hmm. Good point. How about adequately we, yeah, funded. Ad, okay. ad, ad, adequately, yeah, right. Yep, yep. Not, you know, right. <laughs> There's, there's there's no there's no luxuries you know and nobody's aspiring for luxuries in, in this area here um and I guess in our context the situation at being about a six is we're just starting to scrape and really see the potential of what an adequately funded service and resource could achieve and we can see that we could do exponentially more with that top up from you know a six to an eight in the next two to three years and then ultimately at some stage in the next three to five years if healthy futures power is going to provide what it aspires to and provide an adequate and, and strong health system for New Zealanders then the organizations need to be funded at that adequate level you know they've got to get to a nine or a ten somehow now that nine and a ten for NGOs still represents a significant savings to the country are based around other than if, than if Health New Zealand or the you know the the what were the old DHPs look to provide those services themselves. There is a there is a strong reason why they contract these services out to NGOs because we have a established track record of being able to provide these services very effectively and very efficiently. And there are thousands, tens of thousands of some of our most vulnerable New Zealanders who rely on your services every day. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, uh, Rosie, Glenn, listen, thank you for your time. Um, I didn't mean to take up so much of it, but um, you've been very gracious and you've been um, very forthright and I very much appreciate the insights that you've given us. Uh, our thoughts are with you and your teams and with the other Alzheimer's organisations around the country. Um, we really do hope that um, government gets the message and that you move Rosie slightly up that scale, um, maybe towards Glenn's six. Uh, but I get, I got the feeling very strongly, um, last word to you both, um, in a nutshell, I got the feeling very strongly that with the increasing demand that's obviously going to continue for some time yet, unless there are some additional resources put your way, things are going to be very bleak. Was that fair? That's it. Yep. Yeah, right. absolutely. And, it, and it, it's, you know, as you said, it's only, we only need another couple of drops from the bucket 
and we can have really, really significant, meaningful impact to those people. And 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 that money, as as Matthew Croucher said, uh, you know, from the New Zealand Dementia Foundation, and that that, that money is is kind of put it starting to put money further up the cliff. Um, and mm. and so that investment, um, instead of it being an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, and, and instead of that being people presenting and requiring hospital treatments, and when people with dementia into the hospital system, they generally stay there for twice as long and are less likely to return to their homes and that type of thing. So so these investments earlier in the stage into the services provide very, very good value for money in terms of for the wider um, community and our affordability of the system. All right. Thank you, uh, Glenn. Appreciate the time. Rosie, thank you. Um, I shall leave you to the rest of your day um, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again in due course. Thank you so much.